truth of the matter was, stories was everything, and everything was stories. Everybody told stories. It was a way of saying who they were in the world. It was their understanding of themselves. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's an old room. It smells like an old room, because it is. This is the inner sanctum of the Art Students League. We're in New York City, West 57th Street. This is where Lichtenstein and Pollock and everyone, uh, where Georgia O'Keefe as well, came to school. This particular room is for heavy-duty stone carving. I've carved several pieces right here. You know what? I'm going to knock this son of a gun out. I'm going to do this piece soon, like tomorrow. Can you see where I'm going with this? It's simply a matter of freeing this girl. You know, if you look at my life, other people who struggle with everything, you actually can overcome these problems and make something flourish. I'm a testament to that. From a ridiculously difficult childhood to running away to drug addiction that nearly buried me. Uh, it's a wonder I'm even here. I learned my trade of stone carving by horsing around in the Greenwood Cemetery. I was young and happy-go-lucky, and I was in a group of friends. Most of us were Italian. We would go underneath the rusted fence. We were young, thin, moved quickly. Once beyond the fence was like paradise for us kids. It was like, wow, green trees and chipmunks. You know what interested me first about the cemetery with the sculptures? Sculpture of a woman outside of a bathtub in marble. And so why would anyone carve a bathtub? And that started me interested. Did someone drown in this bathtub? What is the story? What interested me was the divide between life and death, and that was where the dead rested. I'll tell you a macabre story. My brother's friends once broke into a mausoleum in that cemetery and opened a casket, took out a corpse's head, and took it home and cleaned it in the bathtub, painted it gold, carried around the streets of Brooklyn. My name is Jerry Torrey. I'm the marble fawn of Grey Gardens.
I was born in 55 in Brooklyn, New York. My parents are real origin of Italian nature, all Italians. I got my head handed to me a lot. My father was rough. He was an angry man after the war, really hot-headed, impatient, boom. He punched me out. I was like 16, say, 15. My old man decided for some unknown reason, punched me, and he hit me hard. I said, you know what? Fuck you. I've had it. I'm so sick you beat me up. I knew I had to survive, and I couldn't do it there. And I grabbed my coat, and I ran out the door, and I never went home. I lived in the woods in Long Island. I had no way of living. I didn't even know my social security number. But I was sort of happy with it. I liked it. I liked learning how to live like that. I built a shelter in wooded area of twigs and leaves and a debris house sort of, of stuff in the woods because it was the country, no longer in Brooklyn. There were rabbits, there was tomato plants, pear trees, vegetables. I would run after squirrels and I was the happiest kid. I loved it. And I could actually escape everything and just walk through the woods. And it was dynamite, I loved it. It, it all got better. How was it like for me? It was like, Freedom land. I was actually free and able to learn about myself without getting my head handed to me and also learn about life. And I, I was a runaway from Brooklyn. I didn't have a lot of start. But the point is, is that I had to learn by myself. I was hitchhiking in the country at the time. It's all you did to get around. And this policeman pulled me over. I got in the car, you know, front seat, and then he looked and he said, you're not supposed to hitchhike, you know, it's dangerous. I said, I'm hitchhiking because I got no transportation. I got less than a dollar on me. I thought I was going to get arrested for hitchhiking, but he didn't arrest me. He took kindness to me. He was Stephen Kallenbacher, policeman in New York City. Uh, he was German descent, he was stocky, great looking, just great looking. I had a crush on him, quick fast. That was around 1972. He found me a job in town on the paper. An assistant gardener needed what do I do? He goes, I'll drive you to the meet these people. And sure enough, it was Mr. Gerald Getty's property. The woman who interviewed me was named Charlotte, straightforward woman. She said, here's your duties. This is what you do. When the, when the owner, Mr. Getty, drives in the driveway, you're not to be seen. I said, well, what do you mean not seen? How do I do that? He doesn't like his employees. So whenever you see him, disappear. Get out of his line of vision. I got fired several times for being on the lawn when he would pull into the driveway. 
He was such a power crazed guy. The only way he got off was to humiliate people around him. He was like the king. These million billionaires, they were so stupid. They don't enjoy anything. All they want to do is be powerful. I worked for him from 1973 to 75. I have roof over my head, kitchen, two refrigerators, a bicycle, a swimming pool no one used but me. At night, I go pedaling around the swimming pool, and nobody cared, or knew, really, because nobody else used it. I wanted to live and to learn, and I wanted to do things I liked and to learn that I liked. That included art, gardening, and to be free. Uh, as a gay homosexual guy, call me homosexual, I hate gay. You know, gay is uh, like happy people. I'm not that happy. There's a gay bar called the Out of This World Inn. I went there after working a few days and had some money and would just bicycle down to the bar. I was alone, it was dark, it was dimly lit. Few guys here, a few kids there, no girls. This is another step up in my exposure to gay homosexual life. There, I met Terry Wallace. Terry was the first guy I made out with, and I thought that was the most exciting thing I ever did in my life. I couldn't believe the affection and the feeling I had. Felt really passionate about it. I really dug it. When I was at the Out of This World Inn and began that relationship with Terry, that was all fine and good. Terry wanted to take me to Maine, but I wasn't really sure about going to Maine because I just got happy in East Hampton. It was great. Anyway, that was that. I did not go to Maine, but one day I jumped on my blue Peugeot bicycle and I rode down a country road that I had not yet ridden. You know, it was all flat. It was country, summer. The road got really narrow. Then I made a lift and lost my footing on the bicycle and fell down because I wasn't paying attention. As I was falling to the ground, I said, what did you just see? What is that house you just saw? I mean it. And I got my footing. I threw the bike in the bushes and I studied the mansion as much as I could see under the growth. I thought the house was abandoned. It was daytime, there was no light in there. I couldn't see any. When I did look at the mansion, it was hard to make out which was which end. The growth on the house had found its way into the attic. Isn't that amazing the way that vine has pulled that shutter apart? 
It looked like a banister. Some of it was yellow and some of it was dry, but it went right through and was lifting the friggin' ceiling of the attic right over the building. That didn't happen in the summer. This has been going on for some time. And the lawn was completely overgrown with wild roses, thorn bushes, poison ivy, sumac, everything that was natural to the region. And I just studied it and studied it for quite some time that day. It was the natural succession of life around it that just drew me in more. Went back the next day and the day after for some time, at least a month. I didn't go up to the property for that month. I didn't want to get in trouble. These are private properties. You know what? I went up to the porch. I got some cards and I said, okay, you either get arrested for trespassing or they just ask you to leave the property. I remember stepping foot on the porch and I looked at the ceiling of the porch and it had been wet and, and rotting away. Then I went up to the front door. Before I knocked, I cleared the dirt from the window and I went and I looked in gray and dark and covered with white silhouettes. It was cobwebs, cobweb city. And it was filthy, really. Ceiling was cracked plaster. It was hanging in shreds. Moment I finished the knocking, white shoes, I could see them just below the railing. And I'm watching her travel, only her shoes, behind the curtain silhouette of cobwebs. One landing, two landings, three landings. This woman dressed it looks like a shower curtain and a, I don't know, a scarf? Like it was fancy looking. And she dressed it well, like she had it wrapped around her head and got traveling around her body like a, a drape, but it was actually like a cape. The moment she opened the door, the mildew and the presence of cats smell feral. You could smell time had moved in and stayed. She opens the screen door, touches my hair, and says, Mother, the marble fawn is here. <laughs> Jerry, you're, uh, you're Aquarius, aren't you? That's what I saw when I met you, Jerry. Remember I said the marble fawn? It was yeah. terrible. Terrible, but... And I said, I don't know who that is, but if you need any help with the property, I'll be glad to help you. She said, come back in the morning. That's just all I needed to hear. I was at least not thrown off the porch, and I was accepted as a possible helping hand here. And I said, okay, I'll be back. I think she said nine, and I was there. But here's the house with two occupants. I didn't know their names. I find out sometime after my discovery that were Mrs. Edith Bouvier Beale and her daughter Edith Beale.
Edie walked me up the main staircase. I, I seen behind her, like, the cobwebs. There was a tunnel. She would travel through those cobwebs to the front door. It was obviously a path worn from years of collection, dirt, dust, and cobwebs. There were raccoons looking at me through the torn-up ceiling, and cats, meow, loud, anxiety-filled cats, they're echoing throughout the house. I mean, to be invited in, it was fascinating. It was filthy. It was nutty. I was the only one allowed in that house for 40 years. Mrs. Beale, her mother, was in the sunroom. I don't know what I said. I know what she told me. She said, I need to eat a vegetable salad and potato and chicken to maintain the beautiful face. It's her words, not mine. And I just said, yeah, okay, yeah. And I, I looked at her and I, I said, I, I, I'm going to help you with anything you need, anything. I, I would do anything to make this better. She didn't understand what that meant. But she liked me there, and we became famously friendly from that point on. Our relationship, our friendship, was built on trust. I was honored to be trusted, and Mrs. Beale trusted me to help in any way I could. Mrs. Beale. Mrs. Bouvier came from a line of aristocrats from the French Parliament way back when she was in France during Hitler's invasion. They fled. She left France, became American society. They lived in New York City. Mrs. Beale had um, her own way of thinking and living and theatrics and arts were not accepted easily, but wasn't accepted at all by her husband, a banker. He gave her a stipend of money to live on. Mrs. Beale could not afford a gardener, so the vines took over, grew everywhere. The roof started getting compromised, the house fell apart. She couldn't afford the maintenance on such a place, so the rooms slowly got worse, the house slowly got poor condition. And from one room to the other, they travel and live. Edie was unpredictable, ran the emotional gamut every day, was devoted to her mother, and stood by her all the years and no one else would. And I don't mean maybe. Edie was a lovely, kind, devoted daughter, gave the best years of her life to protect her mother even while things deteriorated and funds were limited. And I would just sit back and just say, it's freezing in the hallway. The window of the beach is tearing apart the wood. It's just unbearable outside this room. And here they are, steadfast on their convictions to be happy and doing what they want. And I know they're eccentric. I know that they're not regular people, but they're struggling through a winter night with the greatest optimism. And it used to bring me to tears to hear them. When you hear a person singing and, and, and wanting to be alive and enjoying the moment, under those conditions, it was quite moving.
But there was a day, this was a trip. I was on the lawn at Mr. Getty's, and a fire truck and an ambulance comes down Lily Pond Lane, going to Mrs. Beale's house. I got on my bicycle, and I, followed, I went right back to the mansion. They were indeed there, and they were harassing Edie into letting them in, and she was being told what to do to pass the inspection. Eventually it happened that they were told this house is unsafe. It was. So the burden turned a little bit to where I was responsible for their safety and the 10 days in which to clean up the house. All of this transpired when I was a teenager, and I didn't realize the weight I took in on myself. I didn't know that it would be like a major thing to watch and care for these elderly people. I know, but he did a little bit of work. No, in he's the greatest worker I ever had in my house. She's I'm mad about little Jerry, and I don't know why. No, I'm I don't. not. I, I, I mean, he's very handsome. I, I feel terribly sorry for him. I have a terrible feeling that something terrible is going to happen to him. You know, because he looks so much like the marble fawn. And that had a very, um, that had quite a disastrous uh, ending of something terrible happened there. Yeah, I did frequent Manhattan. I did go out. Maybe I go for a night or a day and a night. I never let Mrs. Beale know my private life. There were three bars that were substantial, historic in a sense. The Anvil, the Eagle, and the Spike. There were gay bars. And I would go into Manhattan to have myself a good time. You find trouble, you find a place to stay if you're nice, pick up a trick. It was really freedom land. It was dangerous. It was all of these things. The Anvil was an after-hours club on 14th and 12th Avenue, and it was a dance floor up there. You could dance around. There was ropes hanging, trapezes, and everything. It was a trip. But there was a stage, too up at the corner, diamond shape, and spotlights, broken mirrors, mirror ball. I learned about my own sexuality there. My friends would draw a pencil mustache in on me, put a baseball hat on. I would hide my face sort of in the crowd and get right into the musical. Downstairs, there was a hallways, back rooms. The place was dirty. Cigarettes, smoke, and everything. And everything went on down there. I had never seen anything like this. That really took my body and made me feel faint. I went, whoa. It was a funny thing, because I'd go there and get myself off and then go upstairs and dance carefree in my jockstrap on the stage. I became pretty good at it, had a following.
It was that summer day. I was having a cigarette on the front porch of Mrs. Beale's house. So I put the cigarette out in the grass, and, and I, I, I would never forget this moment. I looked and I said, this can't be, this isn't happening. I mean, how in the world is the first lady of the United States walking alone towards me in this rubble and this overgrowth? I look like a dirt bomb. I'm wearing a dirty sweatshirt and jeans. And sure enough, I look again, and it sure is the first lady of the United States. She's got her glasses and her kerchief, and she's walking towards me, and I'm starstruck big time. And I'm trying to, like, keep my cool. And Mrs. Onassis looks up at the mansion in complete disbelief. You can see her. I watched every motion, every movement of her face. Edie's opened the window saying, don't let her in here. Don't do it. My mother and I will not have her in all this crazy talk. And then Mrs. Onassis moved her glasses, extended her hand, and said, my aunt and my cousin, they've grown fond of you. They trust you. In fact, I am unsure of why exactly they invited you into their lives and the house. But you're here, and they trust you. Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis was born Jacqueline Bouvier. Her father, Mr. Bouvier, was Mrs. Beale's brother. Mrs. Onassis did not go in the mansion. She did speak with Edie. It was hated, I could tell. Then she was leaving and she said, well, you've done so much here and know this sort of thing. I'd like to take you out for a restaurant, have a nice dinner with you. And I said, I know, we could go out in New York City. Made an arrangement to get picked up by her chauffeur, but I didn't look like I belonged with her and I really wasn't in her league. So she, she and I, with the chauffeur, of course, drove around the city, went through Central Park once on a loop, and she went back to her 1085th Avenue apartment, but graciously extended herself to me would you like to come in for a drink? I knew she, I wouldn't. She offered that to me because she's just being gracious. And that was our relationship. The last year was really the worst year. We had run out of oil, so the pipes froze in the house. They burst in the walls. Mrs. Beale was in bed, so sick. Oh, she did, got weaker and thinner and lighter. She was dying. The last few days, it was very sad. I placed Mrs. Beale in the rolling chair, wheelchair. She was all but 90 pounds, I lifted her no problem. And she was in linens, like a white blanket. And I remember this so well. She, we rolled her out uh, towards the sunroom, but it was really not safe to go out in the wind, you know. She, now she's very delicate. I lowered myself to gaze into the face of Mrs. Beale, and her little blue eyes were like, just staring at me. They just looked at her eyes, and we just communicated like 
like something I've never, I've really never experienced that type of friendship before. Not with my parents, not with anyone. And I knew she knew it, and I did too. That would be the last time I would see her alive. I didn't cry, it was really powerful. Two days later, the ambulance took her to the hospital and she passed away. Edie never was that emotional. She was broken up. She said, my mother, my mother, and all this drama. She was very sincere, though. I said, Edie, what are you going to do now? She said, well, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go to Great Gardens. I didn't invite myself. and I really don't feel I wanted to go back there. It wouldn't have been the same. And I went back to New York City. I met Robert in the Rambles in Central Park. The Rambles used to be part of the park that is actually untouched it's as it would have been. It was a natural portion of Central Park. I went there cruising. Cruising is going out to meet somebody, usually for a sexual one-night thing, one-night stand. Simple as pie, except it's with men and not with pie. <laughs> <laughs> Robert's on his bicycle and I'm walking and he gets he puts his foot up on the bench and waits for me to get to the bench and we he he and I hit it off like famously. He was good looking. He was interested in me sexually and I was interested in him. Yeah, we had an open relationship. At first, I wasn't, but then he said, I, there's no way I'm going to settle down to having you as a one-time person. He was too good-looking to settle down. But he and I had a special interest in each other, and I moved in. We were together a good year before I went off to Riyadh. A Mr. Anasis had been in contact with me through the mail, you know? And he said, Mrs. Bill passed and he's selling the house and all this stuff. And I have a chance for you to take the job opportunity. He spoke heavy duty Greek accent. He was so hot on the telephone, I loved him. When I went for the interview and they, I met this one guy or an Arab, a very bright, good-looking man. He he said, we have an opportunity for you to work together in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And I said, um, where's Saudi Arabia? I didn't know Saudi Arabia. He asked me, well, what do you, can you do? I said, well, I'm a gardener. I can tell you that confidently. Um, I'm a good worker. Frankly, I can paint and take directions and how to work. I didn't have any skills besides gardening. And they told me the salary, which was out more than I've ever earned in my life. And I said, oh, good, I'll take the job, I'm happy. 
Next morning, they called me. They hired me to work in Riyadh for the royal family of Saudi Arabia, the king of Saudi Arabia, King Faisal's family, the Fods. And I didn't even grasp the, the intensity of this opportunity. Uh, my interpretation of the Middle East was the uh, genie in the lamp and the flying carpets. That's it. I was in Brooklyn. What do I know? But I went. I was thrilled. It changed my life. It did. We landed in the middle of the night and we're at Riyadh Airport and plane lands, they open the door and boom, it's 90 degrees. It's hot as an oven. I mean it, it's dry. It's good heat, I don't mind it, but it's hot. We go down the stairs, I look and then they're praying to Allah. When I get closer to the terminal, there's a fellow there wearing, he looked like he just walked out of the Old Testament with a sword and a robe, an old timer, his big wide belt. I said, is this Hollywood? What is this guy? He was a real deal, he was a police officer and with a sword in, Sa in Saudi's airport. I look around at the, in the customs line and I said, wow, I'm really in a foreign country. This didn't feel like any place on earth to me. I didn't, it was hard to absorb where I was. The palace was enormous. It took me about a few days to get even affiliated with working around. I couldn't believe this. The palace was the following. It had corridors with Paintings of guess who, all the royal family portraits, tapestries from Italy, sculptures everywhere, a room for theater, big auditoriums, a bowling alley. I lived in a bound building. It was like I had the best setup. I had 21 gold carat sink in my bathroom. Really, hand, I mean it. I. Honestly, did not see all of it in the 13 months I lived there. It was so immense. That, and it was, so many areas were forbidden, taboo for Westerners to go into. After I got acclimated with the palace, I was, what did I, what did I do? They had a greenhouse, big as this building, really nice one. And they had a garden, but nobody knew how to keep it. I mean, they didn't know how to water it. They didn't know what temperature. They didn't know how to adjust the lighting in the Sunday and the sun come through the blinds. And my only forte was gardening. That was very simple for me because the plants were basically tropical. It wasn't that difficult. Some died, but most of them lived. And that was my duty in the greenhouse. That was fun. I loved it. I, I was, I still, it took me time to get used to it. I had my own chef. He didn't cook a lot. It wasn't good. He was not a good cook. And actually, I had a tailor who made my shirts. They were that kind of expenses. No spare. Everything was not spared. I got my own chauffeur, Ahmed, from Lebanon, Beirut, Lebanon. And I had this one Turkish fellow maybe Turkish coffee in the morning. 
Well, they gave it a breakdown of the customs, basically. It was really basically the customs. Well, don't use profanity, don't take your shirt off, do not wear shorts, don't look at the women more than a glance. There's no meat, you can't eat any meat over there. It's all, it's difficult to get good food. The customs are so strict. Five times a day, including three o'clock and six in the morning, there's prayer. And I can't recite it, but it's, it's macabre, it's old. And that's really haunting. It wakes you up and you're reminded that you're still in the desert and living under strict rules. The culture was a real big shock. Nobody knew my scene there. I wouldn't have let them do, know about my scene. One, I'd probably get jailed and put to death. Two, I was working with really uh, construction worker types, real redneckers. I don't want nobody to know my business. Nobody. I, I appreciated what they looked like, but I would never blow my cover. I knew better. I enjoyed the novelty of being there for about uh, uh, maybe a month. You know, I, I, yeah, I lasted about a month before I started getting really sad. And it started naturally for me because when the sun would go down, I didn't, I could, I got really upset. I'd go to the roof and ball and I'd see the sun set and I said, I gotta get out of here. I wanna go home. There was no communication with anybody because nobody spoke fluent English, which really leaves you a lonely feeling. You know, you're in a world where no one's and talk to you, even about a drink, a Coca-Cola, and everything was wrong. I, I, I wasn't eating right, I wasn't getting laid, I was not happy. I wasn't doing anything I liked except making money, which got tired fast. My, uh, my friend would be smell, he would mail me flat joints in a, a letter. Every once in a while I'd get a letter with a joint, thank God. Smitty and I, this American Indian dude, who I had a crush on, of course, we made pizzas one day, and he and I went to the souk out of town, it's a marketplace, on a Friday, the only day off. Went there to collect ingredients, and we made pizza pies. And after we made the pies, we went to a neighbor's building. There's all these little fenced-in residences. He went into one, offered women, uh, Arabian women, pizzas, and we got arrested. It was really, that was scary. Because I didn't know where I was, I didn't know what to do, I didn't know who to talk to about it, I didn't know what we did. We were in trouble. And we were in handcuffs for two days. But I immediately realized how absolutely dangerous it was to be there. That's when it really turned the page. So I want to get out of here, man. I got all this bruising. I didn't relate to their customs. It got worse. So I wanted to go home. My boss said, we can give you a vacation. I said, great, let me out of here. Where do you want to go? I said, I want to go to Greece. I landed in Athens and went to the docks. 
took the first boat to an island called Mykonos, where I, I was told by someone at the dock, that's where you'll have a good time. There's liquor, there's chicks, and all this silliness. And I rented a room there uh, on the dockside, and uh, I lived there for about two weeks. When then I came back from Greece, they raised my salary at 2400 from 19 and after a few days, I got back to being sad. And I started really, it was noticeable that I was withdrawing. What did I do? Just went back to the routine, up to the roof every sunset. I, I didn't want to be there, I didn't want to eat. I was not cranky or hostile, I was just lonely and sad, they could tell. So they said, why don't you go on another vacation? I said, great. Where? I said, I'd like to go to Egypt. It's only three hours away. They have hashish there. The first day I arrived, I threw my luggage in the hotel room, and I went to the lobby, and I got in a cab, and I said, take me to the pyramids, please. And that was the most memorable ride. The window in the cab was all broken. It was a real shebangy car. Then I went uh, back to work, and guess what? They raised me another few bucks. Like, I went about 2,500 that time, and I was making that a week. It wasn't long before I went back into that state of loneliness. I have made a lot of money, and I've seen the greatest things I ever wanted to see. I want to go home with it and play, party. So I want to go home. So a little time passed. You know what they offered me? They offered me a contract of four more years, that would have been five full years if I'd stayed, full pension for the rest of my life. I don't know, a pension of like 1,100 bucks a week forever. I swear. Sometimes I wish I had done that. I mean, it, sometimes I look now, I'm, oh, I'm 60 something years old. I was 20 and I wish I had, honest to God, toughed it out. I should have. It was like November. And I had to get to December to come home. And I was determined this time to get my exit visa. And I knew I could make it now because I had to get to 12 months. So they wouldn't let me out in December. So they said, you have to wait till January. And that really freaked me out. And I definitely got so determined. Now I have to get out of here. They're pushing me around a lot with this visa shit. Then they gave me this huge piece of paper with all this Arabic writing, and it was my ticket home. Out. You've been listening to Everything is Stories, a podcast brought to you by Oscilloscope Laboratories. This episode was produced by Bart Barshaw, Paulus Van Horn, Garrett Crow, Mike Martinez, and Tyler Ray. The music you heard in this episode was provided by Total Control, Coco Leaf, and me, 
Dance Was Any. If you're interested in hearing more of any of those bands, you can find links to all of their music at our website, everythingisstories.com. Over at the website, you can find all of our past episodes, season one, two, and three. Ways to subscribe to our newsletter, as well as photos of Jerry's past and present, with current photos taken by Sarah Mesa. You can find Everything in Stories on all of the social media platforms and anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Follow us, subscribe, and engage with us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. And remember, nothing comes from nothing, and everything is stories. Whatever else Graham Greene does, he always tells you a story. Not his old introspective musing and grousing and chewing your liver. Uh-uh, let's get on with the story. Keep me up tonight with this story you're telling me. I want to turn the page. All I ever wanted to be and all I think of myself as being is a storyteller. That's all. I just tell stories. <laughs>